Coming to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny. Motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode 60 of the Forge of Freedom. Today, I have a special guest on the show, Jacob Hornberger. Uh, Jacob is the founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. Uh, He was born and raised in Texas and received a a bachelor's in economics from the Virginia Military Institute and his law degree from the University of Texas. He was a trial attorney for 12 years in Texas. He was also an adjunct professor at the University of Dallas, where he taught law and economics. And in 1987, uh, Jacob left the practice of law to become director of programs at the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, He has worked to advance freedom and free markets on on talk radio stations all across the country, as well as on uh, Fox News, and uh, including shows with Neil Cavuto and Greta Van Susteren. Uh, And he he appeared as a regular commentator on Judge Andrew Napolitano's show, Freedom Watch. Jacob is also, and the topic that we're here to talk about today, the co-author and editor uh, of the book, The Tyranny of Gun Control. Uh, so, Jacob, with, with all that said, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. It's nice to be here with you. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, agreeing to, to come on to the podcast. I'm, I'm looking forward uh, to our discussion. As most of my listeners know, I'm, I'm an attorney. I'm, I'm also a firearms instructor. And, and this podcast, I, I try to... Uh, mix firearms-related topics with other more broadly freedom-related topics. But what I love so much about this book is that it's a, it's a wonderful synthesis of both. And that's what's often missing from a lot of the, the firearms-related literature. Uh, most people who are engaged in the firearms industry and, and gun rights are often conservative. And so we miss that more libertarian angle to the argument. And so I, I, I was anxious to, to talk about this book because I think it provides a wonderful sort of philosophical, moral, economic foundation to uh, the, the gun argument. Um, so um, thanks again for, for c- coming on the show. I guess, first of all, I'd like to start out, if you don't mind, uh, would you just say a little bit about what motivated you to write the book and how it came together? Yeah. Well, 34 years ago, I founded the Future of Freedom Foundation. I had left the Foundation for Economic Education to start my own educational foundation. And I wanted a foundation that presented the the principled and compromising case for the libertarian philosophy, rejecting any kind of reform measures and fix-it measures and trying to improve the welfare warfare state way of life under which we live, and instead making the case for the genuinely free society. Uh, especially in the context of the burning issues of the day, so that rather than just write an esoteric article on why minimum wage laws are bad, we we take a real live dispute over minimum wage legislation and we address that and show how 
libertarian principles are the real answer to these controversies. And at the core of this is, uh, is gun rights. Uh, I mean, in order to have a free society, you have to have the, the right to keep and bear arms. If any society in which people do not have that right is not a free society, there's no way it can be considered a free society. So the, this book is really a collection of essays that we had published. We have a monthly journal at the Future of Freedom Foundation. And we said, hey, let's take the, the best of these essays from different authors and put them together in a, in a book that will be timeless. People can pick it up, you know, 100 years from now, and it'll still uh, apply because it's based on principles on making the case for the right to keep and bear arms. And so that's what we did to bring this book into existence. Yeah, I, I love the um, the fact that you mentioned there, there's sort of ever, evergreen uh, universal principles that will be relevant, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, uh, as relevant then as they are today. And I think that's I think that's obvious when you when you read the book, because, I mean, some of the examples that you give in the book are, are older examples, uh, depending on which essay um, it, it, the chapter is, is taken from. But uh, one thing I'd like to dig into a little bit is this idea of uh, gun rights. And, and that really stems from, because uh, guns don't have rights, right? But that's a common phrase that we use in, in common parlance, right? But people have rights. And so what is the root or sort of the foundational principle behind um gun ownership, the argument for gun ownership? Well, the, the big root is the concept of private property, which is the foundation of a free society. Uh, if, you, if you don't have private property as your foundation, once again, you don't have a free society. And we compare that, of course, to a socialist society. A fully socialist society would be one where the, the government owns everything. Uh, and you know, businesses, houses, and everybody works for the state and everybody lives in public housing. Um, America was founded on the concept of private property. Um, if, if we exclude, of course, the horrific e exception of uh, slavery and other things, women's rights and so forth. But the, but the foundation of a free society and a free market society is private property. And what that concept is, is that people have a right to, to own property. And the corollary of that is that they have a right to sustain their lives. Uh, that, that's when Jefferson talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He took that phrase from John Locke's uh, second treatise on government, uh, who talked about life, liberty, and property as God-given natural rights that pre-exist government. And so, as Jefferson points out in the Declaration of Independence, our rights come from God and nature and not from government. And that instead, it's the purpose of government to protect these pre-existing rights including the right to own private property. So as you go into the marketplace with the quest of sustaining your life through labor, through productivity, through working for somebody else or opening a business, you have a right to keep the fruits of your earnings uh, and decide for yourself what to do with them. So the corollary of that is there's no mandatory charity in a free society. No one should be forced to care for others. Everybody should be free to do that. So as part of owning the fruits of your own labors and the money that you're making in the marketplace, you, you have a right to buy products from whomever you want to buy from. 
And that, of course, includes guns. It's not just food and clothing and housing and so forth. Uh, guns are private property. So under the concept of private property, which is the, the major root of a free society, you have a right to own guns just like you have a right to own a car or a right to own a house and so forth. But the right to own guns actually expands uh, in terms of just the, the concept of, of owning private property. That the idea behind, for example, the Second Amendment, which doesn't give us gun rights, that, you know, contrary to popular opinion, it protects the pre existing right to own guns. Um, the, the people who advocated that particular restriction on the federal government recognize that government is your greatest threat to your freedom and your well-being. Now, today we're told that Russia is our greatest threat or China or North Korea or Syria or the Taliban, Iraq, whatever. But actually, the greatest threat to our freedom and well-being lies with our very own government and especially the national security establishment, uh, the Pentagon, the CIA and the NSA. And the framers understood this. I mean, you can you can look at the quotes from a lot of the founding fathers. You can go to our website, the Future of Freedom Foundation, just uh, Google or do the search engine, standing armies. And you have all these quotes saying standing armies are grave threat to to people's liberty. So they they oppose great big military establishments like we live under today. President Eisenhower said the same thing in his farewell address in 1961. He said, this military industrial complex is new to America. He was referring to the national security state form of governmental structure under which we live now, which is contrary to the limited government republic form of government that we that, that our nation was founded on. He says, this system is a grave threat to the rights and liberties of the American people and to um, our democratic processes. So the the founding fathers, the framers understood that your right to keep and bear arms is an insurance policy to protect yourself from tyrannical governments that would use their force, their overwhelming force to take away your rights and your liberties, enslave you. And so people, a well-armed citizenry is able to defend themselves against that potential tyrannical uh, regime. And so it keeps the government in check when they know that people have the ability to resist with force. And so that was the main idea. I mean, the, the, you know, they, the colonists who are now American citizens after the revolution, uh, the declaration, they have remembered that the, the first thing the British did when the revolution starts, they go out and try to confiscate guns because they understand that a disarmed society inevitably is going to be a very obedient society like in China or in Cuba. And then finally, you've got the right to protect yourself from murderers, rapists, thieves. This is an essential part of a free society, the right of self-defense. And so when, when Jefferson talks about the right to life, subsumed in that is the right to defend your life against somebody who would take it away. And the, the great equalizer for smaller people, uh, weaker people, is a gun. That, and you have a right to, to use deadly force if that's the way you... You need to save yourself uh, from a murderer or a rapist or a robber and that sort of thing. So those are the concepts, private property, the right to protect yourself against tyranny, a tyrannical regime, and the right of self-defense against murderers and rapists that form the, the, the ambit around the right to keep and bear arms. 
Well, I, I, I certainly appreciate your, your commentary there. You, you touched on so many different, I think, important notions that people often overlook, beginning with this notion of private property. And even oftentimes, uh, and this is pointed out in the book, conservatives go astray on this and, and you draw the distinction or the the comparison with the the war on drugs uh to to the war on guns um and i think it, it it stems from this lack of focus on private property rights uh and one of those private property rights as as you've uh, said is that you have a right to your life and to your body and that's the, one of the greatest property rights that we have and and of course a corollary to that is the right to defend that life. Um, so one thing I, I want to mention, you, you mentioned this earlier in your comments, is that the Second Amendment protects a pre-existing right. It does not give us any rights. So would you mind to say a little bit about where the Second Amendment comes from, why it was adopted? Uh, because it wasn't, it's not part of the original constitution it's a it's an amendment to the constitution so why was it included in the constitution and what was the reason for adopting it yeah when the when the constitutional convention was meeting in philadelphia it was with the objective of fixing the articles of confederation now we're we're talking about three different forms of governmental structure here We've got the national security state form of government structure that we live under today and have lived under since 1947, maybe a little bit before that. Uh, we had a limited government republic, which was what America lived under from the time of the Constitution to uh, around 1947. But before that, Americans lived under the Articles of Confederation, where the government's powers, the federal government's powers were so weak, they get this. The federal government did not even have the power to tax. So the, the federal government operates for a little bit more than 10 years without any power to tax. And uh, that's the way people wanted it. They, 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 like I said earlier, they considered their own government to be the biggest threat to their freedom and well-being. So they, they pull together this Articles of Confederation and they make sure the federal government isn't given too much power. Uh, but there were problems with the articles. There was trade wars and other difficulties. And so they go into the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia with the objective of fixing the articles. Instead, they come out and they meet in secret. They come out with a totally different proposal that shocked people. They say, well, we've got a different governmental structure we're proposing. This is going to be a limited government republic which made people really nervous because this government had more powers than the federal government under the Articles of Confederation, including the power to tax. Now, it was pointed out that this was the power to, to tax with indirect taxes, not direct taxes like an income tax and an internal revenue service, that an indirect tax like tariffs or excise taxes, which are not as intrusive as a direct tax like an income tax, uh, but it was also given other powers. And so people were concerned that, hey, this government's going to end up being a, a government that wields omnipotent powers. It's going to start killing us. It's going to start taking away our guns. It's going to seize our private property. And the answer to this was, no, 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 you don't need to worry about this. Because for the first time in history, the government's powers are going to be limited and they're going to be limited to those enumerated in the document, in the Constitution. So this, was, this is what was known as the enumerated powers doctrine. 
if a power wasn't enumerated, they couldn't exercise it. So, for example, if the government wanted to seize people's guns, you look at the Constitution, that power is not delegated to the federal government, so they can't exercise that power. What if the government wants to uh, put people in jail for criticizing the government? Can't do it. That power is not enumerated. So the American people, based on that concept of enumerated powers, said, okay, we'll approve the deal. But they were still really leery. And they said, we want to make it real clear here with express restrictions on your power. And we want this document to be amended right after ratification with what was called a Bill of Rights. But it's not really a Bill of Rights. It should have been called a Bill of Prohibitions because it doesn't give rights. It just lets everybody know, especially in the federal government, that you don't have the power to take away freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the right of people to assemble. Now, the counterargument of this was, we don't need these restrictions. If it's not enumerated, they can't exercise it. So the restrictions are going to be superfluous. The American people said, we don't care if they're superfluous. And somebody said, well, what if you enumerate rights here? What about the rights that we don't enumerate in the, the Bill of Rights? Well, that was the Ninth Amendment, that even though we don't enumerate a certain right here, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We're just using some here in the Bill of Rights. So that Second Amendment was, you can't take away people's guns. Now, again, that wasn't an enumerated power, but it was so important to people. It, it was almost as important as freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And I believe that really the Second Amendment should be made first, because I think gun rights are much more important than the freedom of speech. Because if you don't have gun rights, you're not going to have freedom of speech because the government doesn't have to be afraid of you when they start rounding you up and putting you in jail if you can't shoot back at them. Like I said, it's like an insurance policy against tyranny. But that was how these these amendments at the top came into existence. Now, you've got this unusual set of amendments that are known as the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th that don't really deal with God-given natural rights. These are procedural protections that say that if you want to target a person, American or foreigner, with death, you want to kill him or you want to incarcerate him, here are the restrictions you have to comply with. Due process of law, um, uh, no taking of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And that meant uh, a notice, like an indictment and trial. And then Sixth Amendment says trial by jury, right to counsel. And so they wanted to make sure that if you are going to try to kill somebody or take away his property, these are the procedures you're going to have to follow. They're, they're sort of what I would call barbed wire entanglements. Before you can do these things to people, you're going to have to go through these barbed wire entanglements. So that's how the Bill of Rights came into existence, is that people wanted to make sure that the federal government could not do these bad things to them. And you've you've talked about this uh, extensively already, but I want to I want to spend a little bit more time on it, this notion that the Second Amendment was uh, obviously meant to protect our pre-existing right to, to self-defense and, and the right to keep and bear arms as an extension of that, but also as a uh, sort of prescriptive measure against tyranny and a, against a tyrannical uh, government. <laughs> has said on a few occasions that, listen, the right to keep and bear arms is no no measure. It's inadequate to stand up against your government. Uh, you would need F-15s uh, or fighter jets to, to stand up against your government. 
Can you say a little bit about that and and why he's wrong? Um, what what in in modern society? Why is the Second Amendment still relevant for that reason to resist ter- tyranny? Well, I actually think he's right to a certain extent. I mean, this is why I really oppose this type of governmental system. I, I think our ancestors had it right. A limited government republic comes with a very small basic military force. And again, as I mentioned earlier, if you look back at the quotes of many of the founding fathers on standing armies, and again, you could find that at our website at fff.org, you see that this is what they were concerned with, that when you have a huge standing military establishment, the citizenry have a an extremely difficult time standing up against that type of military establishment, even an armed citizenry. Because they're so powerful, they do have the tanks, they have the jet planes, they have the missiles, and so forth. I mean, a, a classic example of this phenomenon was the the military coup in Chile that took place in 1973. You had the military intelligence establishment. They're, they were a national security state the, the same way we are now, powerful military intelligence section of the government. They went to war against the executive branch. And the executive branch was represented by the president, uh, Salvador Allende, who they opposed and they considered his policies to be a grave threat to the national security of Chile. And a war broke out. And and, uh, Allende's people were there. Uh, Allende was wearing a military helmet. They were firing back. They were in the National Palace. The jet planes were coming in and trying to assassinate him with missiles fired into the National Palace. You can see videos of this online. It's remarkable. And then his position was surrounded by infantry and armor, tanks. Uh, And finally, uh, you know, he he had to succumb. The the national security branch was just too powerful. And so to a a certain extent, there's a huge danger with this type of thing, even for a well-armed citizenry. But you're still better off, even under this type of system, which I oppose, and I favor the, the, the restoration of a limited government republic, which, with, which is a government with very few powers uh, and no power of assassination or denial of due process, and with a, just a basic military force that cannot stand against a you know, fully armed nation of, of, of civilians. But even in the type of system we have today, if things got overly tyrannical, uh, there would be people rising up to revolt, and there would be, obviously, it would be a, essentially a revolution trying to oust the, the sitting regime. But inevitably, there would be sections of the government that would be joining the rebels. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that they would just all stand in unison. And as those elements start peeling off and join the rebels because they understand that this is a has become a horrible, horrific, tyrannical regime, uh, then th- things start getting uh, evened up. You, uh, you have pilots on your side. You have people that can operate tanks. And so if you look at it in terms of just a monolithic national security establishment, yeah, it, w- it would be difficult standing up against that. But as you start peeling them off and they start joining the rebels, uh, then start things start getting equal again. But again, the fact that a citizenry are armed and, and and Americans are armed to the teeth, as you know, I mean, it's impossible to know how many guns are out there, but these there's a lot of guns out there. And every regime has to know that if they cross a line, let's say they, they if we're going to talk about horrific things that they start, 
you know, rounding up people and raping people. The same what, let's say, what Augusto Pinochet did in, in Chile after he took over. His goons started round, rounded up some 40, 50, 60,000 innocent people. Uh, they were authorized to torture and rape people. They killed around 3,000 of them. But let's assume that started happening here for whatever reason, some emergency. Well, they know that this is an armed citizenry with the ability to resist violently, they have to factor that in. And so, like I said earlier, it's an insurance policy. They got to think twice before they start something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's a, and there are a few stories of uh, sort of what, what seem to be futile uprisings in, in the book. Uh, but the, for instance, um, there was the, the Warsaw the ghetto. There's an example of that in, in the book um, of an uprising where um, a group of a very small group of people accumulated weapons over an, a period of time uh, before they uh, began an uprising. And, and they, despite many odds, they they were very effective at uh, sort of uh, pushing back their uh, oppressors. And I think that having that ability to push back, whether or not it's it's completely effective, is really what we're trying to to, to maintain and to preserve is, is a way to protect our life and a way to at least fight back. And the, the Second Amendment protects that. Um, would you agree with that or do you have other thoughts on that? And that's a great point um, that, you know, the the Jews in Germany were were disarmed. And so it. You know, you really didn't have much choice as a Jew except to follow orders and and start heading toward the uh, the camps. Uh, but this group was able to acquire weapons, and you know, you get to a point where you figure, okay, they're going to kill me anyway, so I'm going to go down fighting. I mean, that that's that's the attitude of some people. That would be my attitude. If you're going to go, then take them down because you you never know when you you might demoralize the enemy by killing some of them. And um, to me, you're better off going down fighting than to just go following orders. And But that uprising in Warsaw shows you, in the Warsaw Ghetto, that shows you what an armed citizenry can do. I mean, they, they cost uh, some Germans some lives there, some Nazi soldiers. They had to send additional forces over there. Um, I mean, it, you know, another example of this is the movie Braveheart. And there, there's a scene at the earlier, in the early part of the movie where the, the, the Lord comes into a wedding party and he says, I claim the right of prima noctur, which was the right that had been given to these lords to sleep with the, the bride on her wedding night before her husband did. And the husband starts to resist, but he's got no weapons. He's got no swords. And, he, and he, this is an armed contingent surrounding the Lord there that's demanding to take this woman away. And, and she stops her husband, you know, he's, he's going to die. I mean, they're, they're going to kill him if he, if he continues to resist. Um, he has no sword or anything. And she stops him and says, it's okay. And she goes off with this guy to be raped um, by him. Well, at, at some point, they, they kill Braveheart's wife. And um, now they've crossed a line as far as he's concerned. And, and he's, he's willing to take them on. And he rallies up all these people. Uh, that start to resist and they take over swords and they start killing the their oppressors and 
So you never know what can happen when when these government officials cross the line. But one thing's for sure is that when you got swords or guns, uh, you got a better chance of, of at least exacting a high price, if not prevailing. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and one of the best examples of this is the revolution, uh, the American Revolution. I mean, who, who would have thought that the, the colonists could fight and win against the, the greatest army in the, in the world and the greatest navy in the world at the time? Uh, and, and the British never, never really had the upper hand, uh, but uh, the colonists were, were armed and, and motivated and uh, having a motivated people that are passionate about preserving their freedom, uh, I think is woefully underestimated. That's a great point. But the, the, but the operative part of that is the armed, because mm-hmm. no matter how motivated you are, if you don't have arms, you're not going to accomplish anything. They're yeah. just going to massacre you or round you up and incarcerate you or kill you. And that's why they conquered Lexington. They were there to confiscate guns. They were smart. They understood the importance of disarming a citizenry. A disarmed citizenry is, is a compliant citizenry. It's an obedient <laughs> citizenry. They, they don't really have a choice. And there's a great um, case, I forget, I think it's the Ninth Circuit, where Judge Kaczynski uh, is Lockyer versus something or other, Lockyer something, uh, where he his his opinion, I think it was a dissenting opinion, I'm not sure, but it, it was fantastic. He said, you know, if people surrender their guns to the government, it's a mistake that they make only once. You, you, you can't make the mistake twice because once you make it once and you give up your guns, the government will never let you have them back. You won't be able to say, hey, we think we made a mistake. Can you give us our guns back? No, you can't have your guns back now. Do what we tell you or you're going to be rounded up or killed. And so that's why you can never, ever go down this road to let government seize and confiscate guns. Right. Yeah. Great point. Great point. Um, one thing you mentioned earlier is the it's hard to know exactly how many guns are out there. Well, in the United States, there are more firearms than there are people. Uh, and there are more AR-15s than there are F-150s on the road today, the most popular vehicle in America. Um, so they're very prolific. There are lots of people have them. Lots of people have many of them. So there's, number one, I'd like you to talk about sort of the futility of eliminating all guns uh, and draw that corollary with the, the war on drugs that's discussed in the book. And then number two, if you if you would talk about would we even want a world without guns if we if assuming we could eliminate them would we even want that kind of world yeah uh if in the war on drugs uh they've been waging this war for how long you know decades at least since the 1960s and we can go even further back to that uh, from that period 1940s and 30s uh, they went after Billie Holiday with the drug war. Uh, but my experience with it dates back to the 60s. I grew up on the Texas-Mexican border in Laredo, Texas. My my father was a criminal defense lawyer, a litigator, did both civil and criminal. For a while, he was also U.S. magistrate. So I grew up around the, the drug cases and so forth. And in fact, when Timothy Leary, the LSD guru, was arrested in Laredo, he was brought before my dad. And then when I went back to practice law, I handled drug cases, uh, primarily in federal court. And 
have seen this drug war for you know all my life, and they've accomplished nothing. I mean, nothing. They're still waging it today. All the DEA agents and federal judges and prosecutors when I was practicing law are now retired or dead, and they're living off nice pensions if they're still alive. It's an exercise in futility, and it all it has brought is massive violence because that's what black markets do. They they bring massive violence, and so if you ever enacted gun confiscation laws where they they make you you see they they won't ever say we're going to enact a law where the the law enforcement people are going to go into your house and look for your guns that's not the way they do it instead what they do is they make it a felony offense to own guns this is what franklin roosevelt did with gold you know he he didn't send people into people's homes and look in their closets and stuff for gold coins they just made it a felony uh, punishable by 10 years in, in the penitentiary if you get caught, uh, not to mention the forfeiture of your gold. So that's what they would do with guns. They just make it a felony offense, and then everybody's faced with this choice. Do I want to chance a felony conviction and 10 years in the penitentiary, or do I want to just give up the guns? And I think a large number, number of Americans would choose to give up their guns because they would weigh the the risk reward here that if they get caught and have to spend 10 years of their life in the penitentiary, it's not worth it to them. Uh, but the problem is, is that your violent criminals, they're not going to give up their guns. Uh, and so what you end up doing with a gun, with a gun law like this is you just disarm the innocent people, the people that would not go out and rob banks or whatever, but just would use a gun for self-defense. You disarm them. And so the only the criminals have the guns and they know that. I mean, this is why in these mass killings, almost always they, they hit gun free zones where it's illegal to have guns there. Uh, they, they make perfect targets. You never see these mass killings at a gun show where you know you got tons of guns at the gun show. They, they go to where the guns are not like a public school and so forth. Uh, so. It would be an absolute catastrophe from that sense of self-defense. And then you've got the problem where the government would be the only one owning the guns legally. And so they've then they've really deprived people of the ability to resist tyranny, like we've talked about earlier. Uh, and now the second part of your question was. Oh, if if we assuming that we we could eliminate all firearms, would we really want a world with no firearms? You talked earlier about that firearms are sort of the great equalizer. And it reminds me of a quote that's in the book in a few places that, you know, that, that God created man, but Samuel Colt, Colt uh, <laughs> made them equal. Uh, yeah. So it, assuming that we could eliminate firearms, would we want to eliminate them in your, in your opinion? No, absolutely not. For, for the reasons we've already discussed is because your, your government's always going to be armed. Mm -hmm. And, and so you, you don't want, you don't want that, that potential where the, the government crosses over into tyranny, because once they cross that line and you have no means of defense, like I say, you become an obedient, compliant citizenry. Like in China, I mean, you, you don't see, you know, resistance to this one monopoly rule of the Communist Party. Uh, why? Because people don't have the means to resist. They You mm -hmm. have to obey. And then the second reason I mentioned earlier is that the violent criminals they're going to keep their guns. And then there's the black market. I mean, if you think that, that the war on drugs, which involves a black market in drugs, is violent, wait till you see a black market in guns. I mean, you're going to see massive violence with cartels and so forth and an underground sales of guns. And, but 
most important, the, the innocent people. Let, let's take a woman that's 5'2", uh, doesn't lift weights, is not that strong, and encounters uh, a, a man who's six feet four, uh, lifts weights, uh, hunk on a street, and he, in a back alley, he, he decides he's going to rape her. Well, she has no means of defense, but if she has that cult in her purse, well, that is the great equalizer. Now, all of a sudden, she has the means of defense. And so we don't want to live in a society where only the bad people have guns. We want to live in a society where the good people have, have guns, too. And, and we should also keep in mind, Alex, that this doesn't mean that everybody's got to own guns or possess guns, that when you live in a well-armed society, you can rely on other people having guns to keep society safe. So let's say you don't want to have any guns in your house because you got kids. Well, if your next door neighbors have guns, you know, the, the burglar or the robber, he doesn't know who has guns. And nobody's going to at, put a sign in front of their house. This is a gun-free zone. This is a gun-free house. <laughs> nobody's that stupid. So if the murderer or the robber or the burglar doesn't know who owns guns, everybody's safe there because he doesn't know which house to hit. Um, or take another example. Suppose you, you're in a restaurant and you just totally opposed to having guns. You don't know how to use them. Um, and somebody decides to shoot everybody up in this restaurant. Well, you want other people there that know how to use guns to be armed, to have a concealed carry, a concealed weapon with them. Because if they can fire back, you're safer. You're, you're free. You're, you're, you're kind of a traveling on their ability to defend everybody in that room. And that's why you always want a well-armed society, even if you are not personally well-armed. Right. Yeah. And, and this, uh, I think, brings up a great, a great point is that it's that it gives that burglar or that criminal uh, re the reluctance to commit the crime, to perpetrate the crime, because like you said, they don't know who is armed and who is not. And that's the wonderful thing about an armed society. Uh, and, and a good friend of mine runs a podcast. It's a gun show podcast called the Polite Society Podcast. And it's from <laughs> this idea that an armed society is a polite society, because if you know that someone else could be armed, you're going to treat them much differently than you than you might otherwise, uh, especially if you're a criminal. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you don't know who's armed, you got to be real careful, especially if you're a, a robber or a murderer or whatever, because yeah. you don't know what the result is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, they often target uh, these mass killers, target gun-free zones. Uh, John Lott, you mentioned him in the book. Uh, in a few places, uh, he runs crime prevention research, uh, dot org or crime research dot org, and it's the crime prevention research center. Uh, I think his statistics show that over ninety six percent of mass killings or mass shootings with a firearm are in gun free zones. Uh, so that's a, uh. a perfect illustration of that point. And then uh, more recently, and you you alluded to this in the book as well, uh, John Lott uh, was saying that. When you compare burglaries in the United States to burglaries in the United Kingdom, only th somewhat, something like 13 to 16 percent of burglaries in the United States are in occupied homes and occupied residences. 60 percent of the burglaries in the United Kingdom are on occupied homes because the burglar knows that their victim is unlikely to be armed. 
Uh, so that's just a perfect example, uh, you know, illustrating the point that, that you're making here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's logical. I mean, if you're going to rob a home, you'd prefer to do it in a home, in a country where people are disarmed, can't fight back. And, and uh, as compared to over here in the United States, and again, if you don't know who's armed and who's not, it makes it very difficult for you. So that's an interesting statistic. I didn't know that. Yeah. But, uh, John Lott is heroic. I mean, I would recommend that everybody, you know, check out all of John Lott, Lott's uh, work on, on gun rights. Uh, yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, and it's Lot L O T T, right? And, um, yeah. Sometimes I, I think I confuse listeners because I switch between referring to John Lot on one hand and John Locke on the other when I'm talking <laughs> about property rights, right? So right. Uh, John Lot L O T T Crime Prevention Research Center, and it's CrimeResearch.org, a great, great resource. Uh, but the other, uh, I think, person I'd like to mention here too is Stephen Hallbrook, who you also mention in the book. Uh, he's a historian, a uh, philosopher, or he has a degree anyway, a PhD in philosophy. Uh, and he wrote a book, uh, America's Rifle, the case for the AR-15, uh, you know, defending the so-called assault weapons of our day, the AR-15, the most popular rifle in America. Uh, but he also wrote a book that I think goes along with what you've been saying here too, is that uh, a common tactic of tyrants is to disarm the population before they implement their oppressive uh, policies. And one of the things you, you mentioned is that one of the greatest killers of people is democide, and that's uh, you know fatalities or, or murder at the hands of government. And uh, Stephen Holbrook wrote a book, I just want to mention real quickly, Gun Control in the Third Reich, that illustrates that point and how this disarmament process took place in Germany prior to, uh, you know, the subjugation and oppression of the Jewish people there. Um, <clears throat> so would you mind to say just a, a little bit, what, today, I don't know how much you keep up with the current current news on, on gun stuff, but for instance, the White House a few weeks ago announced uh, a policy that they want the ATF to implement uh, background checks to the fullest extent possible to get as close to universal background checks as possible. Would you mind to say a little bit about that and what your opinion is on that in terms of uh, sort of this slippery slope to confiscation? Yeah. Uh, first of all, let me just say that uh, Stephen Hallbrook is heroic. I mean, I don't think you find a better writer on gun rights than, than Hallbrook. I mean, I highly recommend people check out everything he writes, uh, articles, books, and so forth. Um, and he's got a great uh, book where he talks about the situation in Switzerland. Hmm. And if I may, I'd like to digress just for a moment, because this, oh, is, please. this, this is a really important point, I think, in, a, in case we run out of time. I mean, we obviously have a, do have a lot of violence in America. There, there's just no question we have these mass killings. Um, but if you look at Switzerland, they are armed to the teeth. I mean, every family's got an assault rifle in his house. Every family knows how to use it. I mean, that the whole nation for centuries has been oriented to defense. They, they don't intervene in the affairs of other countries, unlike the United States. Everything is ori oriented to defense. Every family knows where they're going to go in case of an invasion. And so nobody, nobody jacks with the Swiss. And so if widespread ownership of guns causes violence, which is the argument here in the United States, how come you don't have these mass killings in Switzerland? 
And so this is where we have to do a lot of soul searching here. The, 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 the gun control advocates say, well, the secret to this violence is to just confiscate guns, nationalize guns, gun-free society, which is ludicrous because as soon as you start doing that, you're going to see this black market and, and a lot of violence. Um, but I say we've got to go even deeper than that. And Martin Luther King said that this is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He was talking to the, about the U.S. government. And we honor King now. You know, he was dishonored when he was living. The, the Pentagon, the CIA, and the FBI considered him a, an agent of the Soviet Union, a communist agent. But how many of us really ponder and reflect on his words? The greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He's referring to the U.S. government. And I don't think anybody can deny that. I mean, we don't know how many people the U.S. government has killed in the last 60, 70 years, but it's got to be in the millions. And that's nothing to scoff at. I mean, they have really made America number one in the area of killing. I, it is my thesis that the reason we have mass violence among the private sector here is it's copycat killing. That these off-kilter people, for whatever reason, are are mimicking or copying this massive amount of violence that the U.S. government inflicts on foreigners overseas. And I can't prove that, but to me, it just makes total sense. You know, the argument has always been that we can kill people overseas, and as long as American soldiers aren't dying, everything will be fine here. People can go on vacation, then go to work, and, and just don't pay attention to all the death and destruction being wreaked on overseas by this massive purveyor of violence. My argument is uh -uh, that inevitably when you have a government that is the greatest purveyor of violence, that violence is going to start seeping in to the, to the very veins and skin and the, the psyche of people and that the off-kilter people are going to manifest that with these mass killings. So if we want to get rid of the mass killings, number one, get rid of the drug war, which is a great purveyor of violence, and get rid of these foreign wars, which is another. Um, now let me get to your question. Sorry for the digression. Oh, no, 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 and it's okay. I'd, I'd actually like to to uh, add on to your point there. I, I think that uh, you make a great point um, about sort of these copycat uh, killings, where sort of the the actions of the government are reflected in the people, uh, and vice versa. But the other thing is that the war on drugs, I, I tell people all the time, I think that if you want to reduce violence with guns, one of the greatest ways to do that is to end the war on drugs because the black markets around the uh, drug, uh, the illegal drugs are extremely violent. And then the other thing is that – and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because this is – I don't have a, uh, any data to back up my assertion here, but I think that – a lot of people, uh, these mass killers, act out um, because they lack purpose. And I think that a lot of that comes from sort of the breakdown of the family. There's not the, the nuclear family like, we, like we've had historically. Um, and that the, the children go through this mass indoctrination program through government schools. They, they learn to be obedient. They don't learn to have agency and sort of carry out, find a purpose for their life. And so they become adults and they lack purpose and they act out um, in, in various ways or use drugs and, and resort to drugs and the violence associated with that, that market. Um, so I think it's a multifaceted problem. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say on that? I don't want to hog the floor here. I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on, on those things, if, or if you had any thoughts. No, I, I think your, your perspective is absolutely fascinating because what you're doing 
is you're interweaving various aspects of the welfare warfare regulatory state under which we live. I mean, you've got the government charged with the notion of that it needs to take care of people with this massive welfare state. You've got this regulated society like minimum wage laws that I mentioned. They lock out of the labor market the people whose labor is valued at less than the minimum, which usually means like black teenagers in the inner cities who would be willing to work at less than the minimum, but they're not allowed to. So what do they do? They, they can't get their, their feet on the first rung of the economic ladder. They're not allowed to because of the law. Well, they inevitably say, well, how can I make a quick dollar? Well, the drug war's right there, man. You can make a quick um, hit right here, sell a package of cocaine or something, and man, you can get rich real fast. And then they end up getting arrested and sent 10 or 20 years in the penitentiary. They get out. They don't have any work skills. Uh, and then, as you talk about, they destroy the nuclear family with a lot of these disincentives. And then what I talked about is this national security state form of governmental structure that, you know, when I was growing up, we had off-kilter people. They were, they were kind of weird people. They acted strangely. They walked around town, uh, very few, but, you know, they didn't bother anybody. They, they were just peaceful people. And now, I, I, you know, the people that are doing these mass killings are clearly off kilter. And, and I think this is what's setting them off, is that you, you live in a violent, you live under a regime that is very, very violent. And your point about the drug war is absolutely right on. That it, the drug war, the centerpiece of the drug war is violence. I mean, that's how they compete. This is how these cartels and drug dealers compete in a black market. And that if you legalize drugs, which is the only way to get rid of these cartels and these drug dealers and so forth, that's the only way. Battling them in court, indicting them, arresting them, we'll never get rid of them. And you can see that by watching Narcos and Narcos Mexico on Netflix. As soon as you knock out one cartel, it's replaced by the competitor. Uh, it's, just, it's just a black market phenomenon. If you want to get rid of them, along with all the violence, you got to just legalize drugs because now then pharmacies are selling the drugs and these people can't compete against pharmacies in a legitimate market any more than you don't see booze cartels anymore like you did during prohibition. Uh, and in Mexico, I told you I grew up on the Texas-Mexican border. When I was growing up, you could go into Nuevo Laredo, Mexico on a date. You could go into bars. Uh, it was a, a fun place to grow up, up in. Uh, there was no drinking age in Nuevo Laredo. And so it, it, we had a good time going across the river, mostly without parental permission, but uh, having tacos and a beer and so forth. You can't do that anymore. I mean, I have friends that are down there say nobody in his right mind would go into Nuevo Laredo because of the drug war violence. And I think it applies all of, to all of Mexico. Nobody would drive in Mexico so you are absolutely right, Alex. You get rid of the drug war and you're going to get rid of all of this violence that is used as the excuse. Notice that they want to confiscate guns in order to keep their drug war going because they're saying, oh, well, that would eliminate the violence in the drug war. That's ridiculous. The way you eliminate the violence in the drug war is you legalize drugs and then let's see where we are. My hunch is the level of violence would go so far down that the demand for gun control would evaporate. Yes. And, and to your other question about gun uh, background checks, this is pure nonsense. You know, it, it's, it's, they think they're going to solve 
these these gun massacres with background checks. Anybody that wants a gun is going to get it. I mean, either on the black market or stealing and so forth. And so the, the, getting all these background checks is ridiculous. And, and what often happens is they keep these lists. Now, they tell us they don't keep them. They destroy them after a certain amount of time. I don't believe them. And so if you do get to that point that we've talked about in this show, where the, in, in a big emergency, you know, a war, where all of a sudden they get scared of the citizenry, uh, they've got everybody's there. They know where the guns are. Well, you have a right of privacy. That's another right we we haven't talked about here. You have a right to own guns without anybody knowing about it. Uh, and uh, once they got ban- background checks, they know who has the guns. Yeah. Yeah, that's a perfect point. And that's one thing I, I love so much about this book, and I haven't shown it on the screen yet, but for those of you who are watching the the podcast by video, here's a copy of the, the physical copy of the book. It's, uh, of course, available on Amazon in the physical form uh, and by Kindle. I wanted to make sure I mentioned that before we wrap up the show here shortly. But the one thing I love about the book, uh, of course, I love lots of things about it. I think it, it makes uh, just foundational arguments um, from property, private property rights uh, against the war on drugs, against the war on guns, uh, and for individual liberty and freedom. And I think that people need to understand those foundational principles because the government violates those principles in all sorts of ways, not just related to drugs and guns. Um, so I encourage people definitely check out this book for that reason. But the other thing is that, uh, to your point, Jacob, a lot of the gun rights organizations, they're not, they're, they're sort of compromised in the way that they approach the topic uh, because they sort of concede ground in, in certain ways sometimes. Um, for instance, the NRA was, uh, you know, sort of complicit in, in uh, the bump stock ban and the uh, background checks implemented initially. And so your book makes the case that all these things, not just universal background checks, but any background checks, any burden or restriction on the right to keep and bear arms is not only unconstitutional, but immoral because it violates the, the foundational principle of private property and self-ownership. Is that fair? Absolutely. Perfectly fair. Yeah. And yeah. makes you at risk that the governor, yeah. government knows that you have the guns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I want to give you a few moments here to to sort of uh, make any parting comments you'd like to make about the book. I don't want to uh, belabor uh, things too much because I want people to actually read the book. You you make uh, the points in the book better than than I could here on the on the podcast. Uh, There's a lot of great information in here about, you know, the parallels between the war on drugs and the war on guns and the history of tyrannical regimes disarming uh, innocent populations and uh, about you know, the gun is the great equalizer and stories about that. So I, I definitely encourage people to, to buy the book and read it. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about the book and then anything else you, you, you'd like to plug? Yeah, well, we've got a great conference coming up at the Future Freedom Foundation. It's going to be a weekly series of talks um, on what is called Austrian economics, which is the, the free market economic way of thinking in the libertarian movement. That from a very principled standpoint, we've got some of the, the great Austrian economists in the country that will be giving their personal account of how they discovered this philosophy and how it impacted their lives and some of the general principles. And that will start in October. So I would invite people to visit our website to 
to learn when those talk, well, they're going to start in early October, but also to subscribe to our FFF Daily, uh, which is we strive to make the best daily commentary page from a libertarian perspective on the Internet. But I guess I'd, I'd like to wrap up just by saying that, you know, we got a lot of problems in this country. I mean, I'm not telling you or anybody else uh, something new here. I think everybody understands that there's something fundamentally wrong in this country. And it, it really is incumbent, I think, on everybody to do a lot of soul searching and a lot of reflection, thought, prayer on how we get this government back on the right track or this nation back on the right track. And that re that necessitates going back to founding principles like you and I have done in this show, but not just on gun rights, but on economic principles, on political principles, governmental principles, uh, the Federal Reserve System, where they've, they've plundered and looted us for decades with this, this system of monetary debauchery. I mean, as, as you were indicating earlier in the show, all of these these issues actually integrate and interweave with each other. So we're not just talking about gun rights itself. We're talking about what are the genuine principles of a free society? What are the infringements on liberty that are taking place? We identify those infringements, and then we, we make the case for removing them, not for reforming them. You know, if we had lived under slavery, um, it would have been an improvement to to reform the slaves, the slavery, you know, less lashings, uh, fewer, um, fewer lashings, better work conditions, better food. But that's not freedom. And what we need to do in this country is reflect on where we started, how we got here and what we need to do to get this country back on the right track. And that track is liberty, peace, prosperity and harmony with the people of the world. Perfectly said. Uh, Jacob, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I enjoyed our conversation very much. Uh, like I said, I hope that our listeners will, will buy your book, read it, and, and think about the principles that you discuss in this book, because like you said, they're, they're applicable not just to, to guns and, uh, and drugs, but to economics and so many other issues. So thanks again for joining the show. Oh, thank you, Alex. I greatly enjoyed the visit with you. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like and subscribe to help us spread the message of freedom. Uh, until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.